and allow yourself to listen, not so much to remember anything, but rather to sense what resonates as being true and useful to you. Most importantly, that it resonates in your own being, in your own heart, with something that you already know in a deep way to be so. In that sense, the Dharma, which is a word for teachings or truth, or all, has a whole variety of meanings, um, is, as much as anything, a reminder. And a reminder in this mystery, um, the mystery of human life and human incarnation. Because we tend to go around, myself included at times, with our to-do list, you know, doing our errands, getting our work done, making our, you know, taking care of our car or our children or our, you know, finances or whatever through the day and get very much identified in some way with the roles and the tasks of our life. In Bali, where I lived for quite a few years, over the years at different points, they said that the people who are closest to the gods or world of the spirit are little children and quite old people, right? The ones who had just come in and the ones who are on their way back out. And the people who are the farthest are the middle-aged people with mortgages. <laughs> so I just finished a couple of hours before the class being part of um, and leading a memorial service for Steve Young, who was a staff member here and a very wonderful man. He was here for about five years and then got, uh, had, got sick, had a stroke, actually went to the hospital and found out that he had cancer throughout his body and died very quickly. Um, and he was just a love. He was a really beautiful man who was, talked a lot about his 12-step work and how he had gone through some very, very hard times in his life or periods, and then found a kind of redemption, which was in part the theme of last week's talk, and will be at least woven in a bit, because I promised I'd do that this, this evening. Um, and so, even in the memorial service, there was this sense, when somebody is close to you dies, or someone you know, it's as if the gates between the worlds open. You go, oh yeah, it happened to them, hmm, maybe, maybe it's not just them that's subject to this. It says in the Bhagavad Gita, at some point, or the Mahabharata, um, <clears throat> the couple of the figures are talking, I don't know, maybe it's Krishna is being asked a question from Arjuna or somebody, you know, what are the marvels of this world and, you know, God in one form or another, Krishna or something, says, well, there are many marvels, but one of the most extraordinary marvels is human beings who can see death happen to people all around them and still believe it won't happen to them. <laughs> so somebody came up and gave me a poem um, before the class started um, called I Am Dying. It could happen this month on a Tuesday morning or Friday evening. The weather might be hot and humid or cool with a chance of rain. There will certainly be breaking news, perhaps an earthquake killing hundreds in a country I once backpacked in, another movie star arrested for drunk driving, 
a lone shooter in one more American school, which will spark further debate on gun control. After I'm gone, my friends will still attend their weekly yoga class, stretching tendons in downward dog, plant lettuce seedlings in gardens rich with compost, and they won't stop grumbling about the rising cost of electricity. They'll meet at Bliss Cafe as usual, sipping extra hot lattes with organic low-fat milk and reminisce aware of the empty chair at the table. Remember that day at Port Wollonga Beach, Jill might say, crunching on her almond biscotti, when the sea sparkled like an emerald and Kay stripped off, dashing into the chilly water, shrieking. And tears may come as they laugh together, recalling the wobble on my bare fish belly white bottom. Oh, please don't be sad that I'm dying. You see, you are dying too. But right now we have this precious time, like the slow drip on a leaky faucet, moment by moment by moment. It's pretty good. Thank you, Kay. So here we are, we're in this mystery and and to meditate is not just to relieve stress, although it can help with that and reduce the kind of tension and quiet the mind some. To meditate isn't to have necessarily some special states, although those also can come and give you vision or perspective and so forth. But in a deep way to meditate is really to stop and listen and look with the eyes and the heart at this mystery of human life and human incarnation. See its tentativeness, the Buddha said, like a star at dawn, a flash of lightning in a summer stream, an echo, a rainbow, a phantom, a dream. To see, you know, each day appears out of nowhere and then disappears. And where is it? What happened to yesterday? Remember August 2013? <laughs> it's done. It's gone back with the pharaohs and, you know, with uh, Genghis Khan and the Neanderthals and the dinosaurs and stuff. It's gone back into the void. It is, isn't it? I mean, things appear out of nothing and they dance their dance and then, you know, it's the next day. And you're born again and again, especially at breakfast. You're still born again for the next arrival of things. Now, where am I going to go with this? Here we're starting. And I promised last week I would continue with some stories from Redemption, but also it's Labor Day. I just scribbled some notes, and I'll see if I can tie these things together. And Who knows? But I want to stay for a time with the reflection of the ephemeralness and the impermanence of life, because... In the monasteries where I trained in meditation, that was part of our morning practice to reflect on it and then say, well, how then will you live? If it's short, if it's uncertain, anybody not clear on that point? (laughs) Raise your hand. Just checking here, okay? If it's uncertain, then how do you want to live each day? what matters. Now I'll say that, and then I'm going to see if I can tie these together and not get to Labor Day or Redemption. We'll see where this goes. Um, I'm also aware that we're about to start yet another war in the Middle East. 
And I'm not even going to say whether it's the right or the wrong thing in this circumstance or what we should do. It's horrifying, I will say that. And if anybody gets on television and says we're going to bomb somebody or we're going to start a war, and they're not weeping, they're not paying attention. And I don't think the question is whether we should be at war in Syria, whether we should have been in war in Afghanistan or Iraq, or we have become or are, if you look at our history of the last century or more, a warlike nation. I think there's a bigger question. What a weird way for a species to deal with conflict, to spend an inordinate, in some cases, a third, a half of the wealth of humanity um, making killing machines. And I think a much deeper question for us is, what are we doing about conflict? What are we doing as an individual, in our families, in our communities, in our nation states? Um, as a species, and can we learn some other way? Um, so it's, in some way, the, the Dharma teachings, if you will, of the Buddha say that the wisest thing is not to look at the circumstances alone, but also to see what causes them, to look into the causes of things. And we have a lot of delusion. Um, you know, the delusion in part is that, well, war is just what we do as a species, right? To solve our problems. Plato said, only the dead know the end of war. That's a pretty radical statement, unfortunately, still true. Um, but I don't think it has to be, just as we have outlawed, even though we're not completely successful, slavery in the world. It used to be pretty common, and you know, read all them old texts, the Greek and the Roman and the Chinese and the Arabic and the biblical, oh my God, you know, and they're full of slavery. You, you don't have to just go to the antebellum south to find it. But now there is a common consensus that slavery is actually not a good thing for humanity, even though there still are areas of slavery. I think it's worth dreaming and considering in the same way that we as a species out, have, have outgrown killing one another with all these weapons as a way to solve our conflicts. Remember General Dwight David Eisenhower, where he says, on this page. Here it is, maybe. Every gun that is made, every warship launched, President Eisenhower, every rocket fired signifies in the final sense a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, from those who are cold and not clothed. This world in weapons is not spending money alone. It is spending the sweat of its laborers, the genius of its scientists, the hopes of its children. This is not a way of life in any true sense. Under the cloud of coming war, it is humanity hanging from a cross of iron. So for me, when I see the you know, modern, current, this week dilemma, it really asks a different kind of attention. And what might we contribute 
in our own lives and in our participation in the world to shift our consciousness from accepting that this is the way we're going to act. A story. Back in the 1970s, there was a period of a lot of conflict in Thailand where I trained as a monk and Buddhist monasteries there. There was revolution. The students and young people were revolting against a military dictatorship happening around the world as we've seen. And it got quite bloody at one point. In the main street leading from the royal palace and the great monasteries, there were barricades and the students on one side throwing rocks, Molotov cocktails, whatever, and the military on the other side. Um, and it reached the point where it was almost out of control. A number of people had been killed. There was a lot of fighting and, and um, people dying. And it was getting worse. And one morning, the abbot of a nearby monastery, a forest monastery not far from Bangkok, got all his monks and nuns together, bring their alms bowls as they would go out for morning collection of alms food. And they walked from very early morning in the dark, barefoot, into the city, and walked and stood in a line between the military and the students. And they spent the morning just there with their bowls, standing, doing standing meditation for some hours in the hot sun. And because there is a respect in those cultures for the renunciation and the dedication of the monks and nuns, uh, at that time there was a very deep respect. Everybody put down their arms, so to speak, and everything quieted down for that morning. And people began to reflect, is this really the world we want to create? And then they walked off silently. But it changed the game. It changed the circumstance. And after that, there started to be negotiations. And somehow, you know, it wasn't all pretty or easy in something or something. But it was a turning point in the way that that conflict was being solved. I just wish we could hire them to go to, let's see, we'll start with Damascus, then maybe we'll move on to, you know, I don't know, Washington, D.C. I think Congress will go next, right? And go on from there. So you understand what I'm talking about in some way. We all do. We all know somehow. All right, so it is Labor Day. And Labor Day is really a day of honoring interdependence and the labor of all that sustains you. When you're in a Zen monastery, there's a, a chant that's done as you take the meal, 99 labors brought this food. And you sort of offer your thanks. There it is, your granola and your strawberries, you know, or blueberries or whatever it is. And then you really look and you remember that each one of those strawberries, which bruises easily, 
was picked by a callous human hand, by somebody with a bandana on her head out in the hot sun, or most of the grapes that you buy were picked by somebody out in the fields, you know, and then were trucked by somebody else maybe in the middle of the night and unloaded and packed and put into freezers and refrigerators and brought out and, you know, they grew because of the worms and the creatures under the earth that aerate the soil. You know, your life depends on the worms and the rain clouds and the work of the farmers. And all of a sudden, you begin to realize that Labor Day really is a day of gratitude. Huh. I'm supposed to stop? I don't think so. <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. Labor Day is really a day of gratitude. Of gratitude both for all that supports you. We forget about it. I had these friends who came Gosh, it was in the early 1980s, they were getting out of Russia, or mid-80s, right before or around the beginning of Glasnost and Perestroika. But they'd been living there in pretty hard times, as, as you know, in the communist period. And they came to, flew into San Francisco, and a friend took them out to a supermarket. And their jaws dropped. My God, it's full of food. What is this place? And they said, come here. And then they went down the block and they went from United Market to Safeway. And there was another one, you know? And then there was another one. They said, the level of abundance in your supermarket uh, trumps anything that, you know, Queen Cleopatra or Emperor or Caesar or whatever. Nobody in the world has had this kind of abundance before that's offered to us. Not to everyone, I'm sorry to say. But there is some way in which we are living in the world that is created by and fed by and supported by others. And you're not independent. That's a kind of American cowboy myth. It just ain't the truth. You're interdependent. And those cowboys were also, you know, nursed or fed their bottle and their bottom changed and they were as dependent as anybody else. And they'll probably get that way again as the cycle goes, as the <laughs> Balinese would say. You know, so it's just not the way it works. And so Labor Day is really an expression of the gratitude of ancestors and the work of so many. And then in the Buddhist teachings, there is this concept or this teaching called right livelihood, which is one of the factors of enlightenment. Now, how could right livelihood be related to enlightenment, whatever enlightenment is? Um, it says in the simplest terms, right livelihood means refraining from those livelihoods that cause harm to living beings, which include slavery, sales of weapons, oops, we as a country are the largest exporter of weapons in the world. If you want to know one of the problems that we face worldwide, all the kind of conflict um, and how much is happening from the weaponry, it's a painful truth to look at that we supply, have supplied hundreds of billions of dollars of killing machines and then we don't feel so safe. 
something's not really right in this architecture of how we're living. So to refrain from slavery, weapons, uh, selling drugs that are harmful to people, the obvious things that cause harm. And then on the other hand, to work with a spirit of giving and care and reverence for life. And it's considered a part of the way to enlightenment, most simply because it's very hard to meditate after a day of killing and stealing or selling weapons and enslaving people. It's when you sit to quiet yourself, it doesn't work very well. So the ground of being a full-fledged human being uh, who is awakening is to refrain from causing obvious harm to others. But that's not the end of the story. Um, first you refrain from harm. Then there is the attention, the loving awareness that we were giving to our breath or our body to the work that you do. So you may have heard this story. A man went to visit a town in France and went to this stone yard and talked to the people who were there and said to the first person who was chipping away with a chisel at a piece of stone, what are you doing? And he said, um, I am uh, cutting stone. They hired me to cut and shape this stone. I said, okay. Then he went to another man who was doing the same thing, and he said, tell me, what are you doing? And the fellow said, oh, I'm cutting this stone, and I'm so grateful because this is a job that I've gotten. I needed work, and I'm making money for my family and supporting my children. And, and um, not only am I, you know, cutting this stone, but I'm really part of a community of people who have work to do, and it feels very grateful to be able to do this wanders around further and he talks to a third person doing the same exact thing. He said, tell me, what are you doing, my friend? And the man looked up beaming and he said, I'm building a cathedral. Doing exactly the same action, but the way of holding it makes all the difference. And this is the second part of wise or right livelihood, is to bring a sense of reverence of attention, of loving awareness to what it is that you do. So everybody knows that passage from Martin Luther King where he says, if a person sweeps, street, sweeps streets for a living, they should sweep the way Michelangelo painted and Beethoven composed and Nureyev danced or something like that. And I remember in the old days when there used to be toll takers on the Golden Gate Bridge, <laughs> that once in a while I would go through the toll booth before there were those little boxes. That, um, and um, some of the toll takers would greet you, welcome you to the city of St. Francis. And it was the most beautiful thing. It was really terrific. So it's not so much the work that you do, because a lot of work is actually boring. Gandhi called it blessed monotony, right? <laughs> It's not that it has to be razzle-dazzle. That's like some American fantasy, right? Once in a while you get nice work. But, I mean, I work as a writer, for one thing. Horrible. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> some people like writing, but 
They haven't written that much yet. <laughs> I like having written. That part's really good. Things to say, you know. But everything that you do is kind of a mixture, and it's not the point that it become easy or beautiful, you know, or, or glamorous, but rather that you bring the spirit of attention and care and love to it, and it becomes your place of awakening. And I, I tell you, I've been in hospitals, nursing homes, where the, you know, the immigrants who are cleaning the bedpans and taking care of the sickest people and doing a lot of the physical labor of it, some of them are some of the holiest beings I have ever met. They do it, some of them, with such care and beauty and joy and reverence. I go, oh, this place is full of saints. So it's not the work that makes right livelihood, but rather it is the spirit that you bring to what you do. Now, redemption. Let me see if I can fit this in. Where are we here? Okay. Last week, I told this story of this famous Buddhist story of Angulimala, who had been a mass killer, um, and his encounter with the Buddha, as these myths go, and turning his life around and finding a form of redemption in which he could actually heal and bless people. And I mentioned a, a similar story, the most beloved and famous story in all of the Buddhist Himalayas is the story of this Saint Milarepa. And Milarepa was born into a relatively wealthy family, but when his father died, another part of the family, the aunt and uncle, took over the property and more or less enslaved Milarepa and his mother and, and a younger sister. Um, made them live in the barn, gave them rags to wear, all kinds of the usual, like reading a Grimm's fairy tale or something like that. And as it happens in such a fairy tale, at some point it got worse and worse. Um, the mother, um, Milarepa's mom, said, you need to go and find a way to take revenge on these people because they've really, um, they have really ruined our family and our lives. And she took what little money that she had secreted away and gave it to him and said, go find this Lama who lives high in the mountains who I've heard can do all kinds of dangerous magic. And uh, so Miller, and she, you know, this is like the, the curse of the mother. And she said, and if you, can't, if you can't do that and come back and take revenge, I think I'm just going to kill myself or something like that. So it was sort of like Jewish Tibetan <laughs> guilt trip. So poor Milarepa, he goes off and he trains with this, with this Lama and doesn't really learn much. The Lama's teaching people. Um, and then he goes out and he starts to weep in the courtyard. And the Lama, the old master of these arts of destruction, says, why are you weeping, knowing his sincerity? And he pours out the whole story. And the Lama sends someone as an emissary to find out if it's really true. He says, all right, I'll teach you the real deal. And he does. And Milarepa goes back and causes this 
huge storm to arise in the valley just when there's a big celebration at their old house and the house falls over and dozens of people die and then other terrible things happen. And um, Milarepa's mother's got her revenge, but he becomes despondent. And like a fearless moral inventory, he says, I was filled with remorse for the deeds that I had done and worried obsessively about the consequences of having done this. So finally he realizes, I have to go and find a teacher to help me redeem myself. And he tries one after another and none seems right. And then he hears about this teacher who's way up in the mountains that everybody says, well, he's tough, but he's the real thing. So he goes and finds this guy, Marpa. And Marpa hears the story of the destructive magic of Milarepa and knows somehow in his heart that he can't just train him in the normal way that one would train a disciple, that Milarepa is carrying the burden of causing so much suffering. And Marpa says, if you want me to teach you, you've got to give me something. You need to work for me. First he sets him about plowing the few, this stony fields. When that's done, he says, I need a tower, a stone one, and no help. You carry every stone. And Milarepa builds this big round tower. He's sweating and his body's getting sore and it's taken a year to build this. And he's doing his prayers and saying, then I'll get these teachings and they'll liberate me. And Marpa comes out at the end. Milarepa calls him and he says, you know, I really, I, you put it in the wrong place. <laughs> put every stone back exactly where you found it and then come see me. And then he has him build a square tower in another place. Now he's getting sore and worse and terrible. And finally he calls his teacher and says, I've done what you asked, teach me. And he looks and he says, you know, square, I told you to build a triangular tower. You got it all wrong. Take this down, put every stone back. Meanwhile, he's getting sicker and sore and whatever. And the, Lama's wife is very sympathetic, and he builds his third tower. Talk about labors. Uh, let me see, where is that passage? I'm going to read to you. Go ahead, light your candles, burn your incense, ring your bells, and call out to the gods. But watch out because the gods will come and they will put you on their anvil and fire up the forge and beat you and beat you until they turn brass into pure gold. So he went and he was filled with remorse and guilt and the teacher somehow knew that he had to do something actually physically. This was his you know, working through of the karma, as it said, of the suffering that he'd created. He built three towers and still the teacher wouldn't give him teachings. And so he, the teacher's wife became kind of sympathetic to him and Milarepa ended up actually trying to find teachings from someone else and telling this whole series of lies about the teacher and his wife. <laughs> John invited his mother over for dinner. During the meal, his mother couldn't help noticing how beautiful John's roommate was. She'd long been suspicious of a relationship between John and his roommate, and this made her even more curious. Over the course of the evening watching the two interact, she really wondered if there was more between John and the roommate than met the eye. And sensing his mother's thoughts, John volunteered, I know what you must be thinking, but I assure you that Carrie and I are just roommates. 
About a week later, Carrie came to John and said, ever since your mother came to dinner, I've been unable to find that beautiful silver soup ladle. You don't suppose she took it or did something with it, do you? Well, I doubt it, but I'll email her just to make sure. Dear Mom, he said, I'm not saying you did anything with this silver soup ladle or, or not, but the fact remains it's curious that one has been missing ever since you were here for dinner. Later in the day, John received an email from his mother, which read, Dear John, I'm not saying you do sleep with Carrie, and I'm not saying you don't, but the fact remains that if she was sleeping in her own bed, she would have found the soup ladle by now. <laughs> Love, Mom. The title of it is Don't Lie to Your Mother. Okay. It's also Don't Lie to Your Llama in Milarepa's case. So I was teaching in Mill Valley, I think I'll, maybe I'll be able to weave these together, with Eckhart Tolle a couple of months ago, who I admire, he's a wonderful teacher, the power of now and presence. And he began his teaching um, with uh, the recitation of the bumper sticker that he had seen on his way to the teaching that said, um, be patient, God is not finished with me yet. And he said, now you hear that bumper sticker and you think that it means, well, you know, God's going to tune me up and make me a really nice, happy, you know, loving, whatever kind of person. He said, but that's not what it means at all. He said, be patient because God has not finished deconstructing me yet. And he said, you have all these ideas of yourself and persona and thoughts of who you're supposed to be. And actually, like Milarepa building the towers or that passage of, you know, light your candle and burn your incense and call out to the gods, but they will come and put you on the anvil and fire up the forge. Then, in fact, if you're really honorable, whether it's in livelihood or looking at the question of war or whatever, when you get quiet or death, having this memorial service or your own life, um, it's not easy. Um, and yet at the same time, what better thing to do? I mean, we could go along and live on the surface, but in some way something much deeper is demanded of you, which is that you awaken, that you look and say, what matters? What are my values? Who am I really? Not just what I've been taught to be, but what matters no matter what anybody else has to say. And so Milarepa had to go through all of these terrible things, and it got worse after he lied. And finally, after he gave up, you know how that happens, don't you? And I think it was 10 years of hard labor, basically. Then he was considering, should he run away? Should he go in the mountains and starve himself? Should he just die? He didn't know. And he was really close to suicide. And then the teacher said, okay, call him in. I think he's ready. <laughs> I think he's done the work that he had to do to prepare himself in some way to receive teachings. He deconstructed the old Milarepa, and all that was left was someone who was just longing to find something that gave meaning and beauty to the heart after both the destructiveness of his life and then the hard labors that had cleaned him out in some way. And in that regard, 
right livelihood and wise livelihood asks you to take the work that you're given and to use it as a training, to use it a place where you can love and grow in patience and dedication and compassion and courage. And um, I remember my teacher, Deepama, she came from Calcutta, and when she first came to the U.S. back in the 70s, she lived in a relatively poor place in Calcutta. And she came, and we drove through the bank on the way to our meditation center in Massachusetts and went to um, stop at an ATM machine to get some cash. Um, and it was one of those freestanding little ATM machines. Um, and she said, oh, I feel so bad. I feel so bad. I said, why is that? She said, oh, that poor person, there isn't even a window in there. <laughs> this is true, you know. We each are given certain gifts. Um, and if you don't, Maladoma, my friend from West Africa, says you actually have a cargo to deliver. And if you can't give the gifts that you've been bestowed in this life, and they might be the gifts of the smile that you have, they might be the gifts of intelligence or caring or artistic or whatever they are. If you don't bring those to the circumstance, and again, it's not about the perfect job, but if you don't take those gifts and bring them to flower where you are, then you won't be happy in this life. The peculiar grace of a shaker chair is due to the fact that it was made by someone capable of believing that an angel might come and sit on it. And there's something about the simplicity of the shaker architecture and so forth that has in it a sense of reverence, which is why it's still celebrated to this day. And this all speaks to the possibility of wise livelihood, of taking where you are and what you do and making it something beautiful. And to, in Milarepa's story, the possibility of redemption, because after being a mass murderer and after doing time with his lama, so to speak, finally he was given teachings and went off and lived in a cave and quite arduously practiced, envisioning that he wasn't this man, Milarepa, but actually inviting the Buddhas of compassion to fill his body, every cell of his body and being and luminosity over and over and over and over again until he, the, the Milarepa that he thought he was, began to dissolve. And what remained was love. And he became one of the greatest teachers in all of Tibetan Buddhism and all of the Himalayas. And basically the point is that it's never too late it's never too late. And you can start again. Whatever you've done, wanderer, wherever you've been, Zen Master Suzuki Roshi says, the, the goal of meditation is to always keep your beginner's mind. And that means this moment and this day, 
no matter what you've done, no matter the circumstances, you can start again. You can look deeply, see your connection with life, you can feel the mystery of your own incarnation, and you can say, all right, then how will I live? What does it mean to enter the world of work or to enter the world of community or to inhabit this incarnation and make it a beautiful one? So you take your work as your meditation, wise livelihood. And it's the place, again, where you learn steadiness and courage and dedication. Or you take the other things given to you. You're a parent. None of the training, and I did some very intensive Zen training and training in the, you know, ascetic forest monasteries where we'd get up at three in the morning and sit and sit up all night and things like that. None of that training was as tough as, you know, having a sick child. Because if the guru, you know, the bell rings or the guru says, you've got to come to the Zen mass, you have to sit. You, you can kind of roll over and get away with it once in a while or sit there and sleep. But when your child is sick, you have to get up and you just have to do it. And the level of attention and the level of um, love that it evokes at best and the level of care is also wise livelihood, is your practice. Where you are becomes your place of awakening. Story. Really trying to figure out which story to tell. Violinist Yitzhak Perlman, one of the great musicians of classical world, had polio when he was a young child. As I did um, in the early 50s, I was in the hospital for a bit and paralyzed and then somehow miraculously after a couple of weeks could move again, but he couldn't. And so he walks with uh, braces. But ever since he was a little boy, he loved the violin, didn't matter, and he played, and he became, of course, this magnificent master. And when he comes to play a concert, he comes in with his braces and crutches and sits down and then takes out the violin and begins to play. He was doing a concert at Lincoln Center with the New York Philharmonic playing a violin concerto, and partway through the violin concerto, playing the solo part, all of a sudden you could hear this loud pop, and one of the strings broke. So he stopped, looked at the conductor. Everyone wondered, all right, is he going to call for another violin? But he's got his Stradivarius that he's playing. Will he get somebody to restring it? What's he going to do? They're all watching. He holds it for a moment, looks at the conductor, and says, go on. And picks up the violin again and finishes the concerto. And anybody who really understood the, the art of the violin or was close enough to watch could see that he was reconfiguring the concerto so he could play it on three strings. And when it was finished doing this, there was a kind of 
awe and silence at the end, and this huge standing ovation, cheers. And finally he quieted people down, smiled, and <sighs> then he spoke to the crowd. He said in a kind of reverent way, you know, sometimes it's the artist's task to find out how much music you can still make with what you have left. And it's really, again, the beautiful story of wise livelihood or living or redemption. Um, you mess up, circumstances are difficult. Um, what kind of music will you make with what's given to you? Because there's Nelson Mandela walking out of 27 years in Robben Island prison with such a gracious heart, so much compassion and forgiveness. Talk about redemption, of a human being, redemption of a whole country, you know, and a vision for the world of what's possible. What kind of music will you make with the circumstances you have? And that's in a way why we meditate, is to get quiet enough to open the heart to see with the new eyes to listen with the heart. I met a woman um, at a conference at UC Berkeley that we were doing on mindfulness and the law named Sujata Baliga, become friends with her. And she had a very rough story to tell, which she ended up telling, writing about, or she was written about in the New York Times Magazine for her work in restorative justice. Um, she was pretty terribly abused and sexually abused for a lot of years as a child growing up in an Indian family. Then um, her father died, the person who abused her, um, when she was 16 or something like that. She was determined to somehow get out of all that. She was a good student, went to Harvard, then decided to go to law school and she was going to become a prosecutor and get those guys who could do something like that. And so she was filled with a kind of rage um, and fire. Um, but as she started her studies and graduate studies and so forth, she got sick because she was carrying so much anger. She decided to take a pilgrimage back to India and traveled around and found herself drawn to go to Dharamsala, where the Dalai Lama lives in exile, the Tibetan community, and sat for a little bit of his teachings, and then went to the gate of the Dalai Lama's house and left a note saying, I'm really struggling, I've, you know, this is terrible family, life has happened, and I'm, now I went to Harvard, and I'm trying to you know, become a prosecutor, I'm so angry, but I'm sick, and I just, can you send me a note, any advice? And then she went, you know, back to her hotel, and somebody came and delivered a note and said, you have an audience with the Dalai Lama, you know, two days from now. So she went to talk with him. And it's so great to sit with him, because he holds your hand and looks at you. It's like some combination of, I don't know, the most loving mother or father, um, Santa Claus, I don't know quite what it is, but it's, it's pretty cool, you know, and he gives a level of attention that's extraordinary and just something about his presence and heart. So he listened to her story and he said, I feel very sympathetic to all the suffering 
that you have in your body. He said, are you, are you, are you ready to stop suffering? There's a question. She said, yes. He said, then two things. First, you must learn to meditate, especially a compassion meditation. And then you must, instead of becoming the prosecutor, you must help the perpetrators. She said, all right, the first one I can do. <laughs> okay, your holiness, I'll do the first one. The second one is like off the charts, sorry. So she came back to the U.S. and she did a 10-day meditation retreat, the kind that we offer here. And a lot of it was just working through the pain and the grief and anger and release. It. And then on the last day, there was a leading of loving kindness and compassion practice that we do often on retreats at different points. And she said somehow because, like Milarepa, she had done such deep inner work on that retreat and was so open, she just began to weep and weep and weep and realize, I can't do this anymore. Stop the whole notion of getting revenge and being a prosecutor and found in herself a kind of forgiveness for everyone. It's like another woman that I know with a very similar background who began to, to run groups um, for men who had committed various kinds of sexual abuse. It was really courageous. She did all kinds of training to do it, and then she said, I'm going to do this. And she said, the thing that astonished her most, she said, was I was sitting in this room in a jail with these 12 men, and as I got to listen to them and know them, at first she was terrified and she had someone go in with her. She said, all of a sudden, it changed, and I realized I was sitting in a room with 12 abused children. That every one of them had been abused in some terrible way. She said, and it wasn't just them, it was the whole human folly and circumstance of suffering that we caused to one another. And she said, and then I knew I was doing the right work. So this is what Sujata has done. And, and there's something really holy about it, even though it's terribly difficult. But it just says that there's, it's never too late. And uh, I know that this group of lifers at San Quentin who've been working with the Insight Prison Project that we started here that's now grown in beautiful ways and does a lot of this restorative justice work, um, they asked to have a meeting with the police chief of Oakland, and he was quite willing to do it, after, to talk about how they could help kids in their neighborhood not end up where they did. That they really, and so a friend of mine who's involved in that said, all right, what I want to do is I want to get some, these kids in juvie and so forth. They're there, you know, and there's not a lot of support for them. They get a little bit of services, but they're locked in their rooms a lot or with one another. He said, I want to get little MP3 players. Guard said, what do you mean? You're going to give them rap music or something? He said, no, I want them to listen to Dharma teachings. That's crazy. Said, all right, who's going to give teachings for these kids? Jack Cornfield, no way. You know, somebody's got to be a little more street than that. You know, Michael Mead, my friend who does this work, he's really pretty good. Said, no, I know who. The guy's in San Quentin. So he started a project, and I have them now, this series of CDs, where he would go and talk to these men and say, I want you to talk to your 15-year-old self. And so there's music on the CDs to engage, and then a guy will say, all right, I'm telling you, here I am, I'm in San Quentin, here's what happened to me. 
you know, and you think your homies are going to take care of you, I tell you, no, none of my homies have come over here to San Quentin in the last 18 years, or you think they're going to take care of your family, said, you want to find your homie, it's in you. Either you find it in yourself, or you're not going to be safe, you're not going to have your life. You've got to find it in yourself, and they just lay it down. Um, and they say, not only do I not want to continue to live the life that I did, and some of these men now are quite magnificent, but I want to make sure that my children and my neighbor's children don't end up where I did. A couple more things before we end. So many stories to tell. Let's see if I can weave this together. So, Wes Nisker, who teaches here, a very wonderful teacher, um, went up to interview Gary Snyder, the great old lion of poetry and ecology and so forth for more than half a century. Gary's now 84, went up to Kit Kadizzi to his place in the mountains, um, and asked him in particular how, what advice he had as, an, as one of the premier and original American environmentalists of his generation. In the 50s and 60s, he wrote Earth Household that he won the Pulitzer Prize for, and he talked about bioregions and all. He was a great voice for, envir for the environment in a time when that wasn't really so common. And he says to Gary, now there's climate disruption, global warming, loss of species. You see what's happening. Um, do you have any advice for us at this point? Gary thought for a little bit, looked back and he said, yes, don't feel guilty. Don't feel guilty. If you're going to save the earth, do it because you love it. It's not going to work to save it out of guilt or shame or some other kind of motivation or out of anger. It's going to work because you see it is your place and it's, you were born into it and you were born a part of it. And if you're going to do something that really makes a difference to really save it, do it because you love it. And this is really the tying together of whether you call it redemption or a right livelihood. It is to find your voice, your way, wherever you each find yourself in different circumstances and bring your love to it and bring your care to it. And nobody else has done it like you before. Nobody else has lived your life. So it can't be cookie cutter. It can't be an imitation. It really has to be your own way. But if you bring love, and respect and care. A couple of stories. Which ones? During my second month of nursing school, one professor gave us a pop quiz. I was a conscientious student, had breezed through the questions until I read the last one. What's the first name of the woman who cleans the school? Surely this was some kind of a joke. I'd seen the cleaning woman several times. She was tall, dark-haired, in her 50s, but how would I know her name? I handed in my paper, leaving the last question blank. Before class ended, one student asked if the last question would count on our quiz grade. Absolutely, said the professor, 
In your careers, you will meet many people. All are significant. They deserve your attention and care, even if all you do is smile and say hello. I've never forgotten that lesson. I also learned her name was Dorothy. So when you weave these together, the training of meditation, of loving awareness, is to be able to be present first with your own experience, with your tears and grief, your fears, your longings, your hopes, and say, yes, I can bow to these, hold these in loving awareness. You sit as the Buddha. And when you expand your capacity to be present, when your heart opens, your mind quiets, you say, here we are in this mystery. Then you get to offer that as a blessing to the people that you meet, to the circumstances, to the work that you're given or find, or even if you can't find a job, you can still bless people when you wander around. You can still, you can. You can offer beautiful things to the world. And it's not that it's for them, baby. It's really for yourself. Moi, as Miss Piggy would say, that's it. In uh, ancient China, even in modern China, um, one of the objects of reverence um, is an old tea set. Because tea is precious in Chinese culture and important for the last thousands of years. And the best teapots are the seasoned ones. And the seasoned teapot means that it's been used for making tea for 100 or 200 years or something like that. It's been in the family for a while. And the cool thing about a seasoned teapot is you don't even need to put in tea. You just put in the hot water and it makes the tea by itself and you pour it out. And that's really what happens to you as you practice and train and develop and learn what it means moment by moment to wake up, to be present, to find your own inner freedom that no one can take from you. Then the work that you do, the circumstances of the world, the difficulties that you pass through, which require redemption in your life or the forgiveness of another, those turn into the places where you bring the tea that you've made of loving awareness, where you bring this capacity to be present and know her name is Dorothy, you know, and his name is Edward or whatever it happens to be, um, that you actually pay attention like the Dalai Lama. And one of the practices that um, got put, I have somebody helping me when I'm not doing it myself, on my Facebook page was uh, a practice from uh, the wise heart from one of the books that I wrote about pretending that you're the Dalai Lama, being the Dalai Lama, secret Dalai Lama during the day and going around and just blessing people or, you know, when you meet them as if you were the Dalai Lama, right? And people love that. That got a lot of likes, right? Many, many, many likes. Um, and I got the likes because it's in you. It's there in you. Um, and it resonates because you realize, oh, this is possible. It's not just Dharmsal and the Dalai Lama, it's actually in you to carry and in you to offer.
I don't know if that makes sense, but we're going to stop here and sit. <laughs> Let's sit for a minute. Got pretty stuffy in here, didn't it? Warm, stuffy, it's okay, you just bow to it. It's fine. O nobly born, begin the Buddhist texts, you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, do not forget who you really are. Trust your own Buddha nature. Let it flower in you, live from it, awaken it. Take the time to walk in the woods, to sit quietly in meditation, to stand by the ocean, to come back to yourself, to remember mystery and mystery and love. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.